echoes of the past. Adleisiair Gorffennol Morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Mary James, and I'm the Library Development Officer in St David's Cathedral. So, um, this place was probably first established by St David himself. Um, so, Dewi Sant, as, as we tend to know him, um, was here in the 6th century. So, we're talking 1500 years ago. Um, Dewi was... Um, uh, maybe what we would call a monk or a holy man, it's referred to sometimes. Um, uh, he was almost definitely um, born and brought up either in St. David's or nearby. Um, the stories are of um, him being born in a storm at the beginning of March, which is entirely plausible to have storms in the middle of March, um, uh, to born to his mother on a cliff top near here where the chapel to St. Non is now and where there is a, a well um, that supposedly sprung up when Non gave birth. And Non herself had been ravaged by, um, it could have been the king of Ceredigion, um, or others will sometimes say the king of Brychaniog, uh, Brecon, uh, probably Ceredigion, and then gave birth to Dewi. Uh, so there are people now who will still come and, and, and visit places where, where Non was, um, uh, sort of as a patron saint of, of abused women. Um, Non didn't stay here that long after Dewi, we, we believe, was educated in this area, in part of Keratigion. There, there are names that you can see around Llandewi, Llandewi Refi, Llanon, also, you know, Henvonnoi, um, these sort of places that, that have memories back and records back of Dewey being educated there. And maybe as he was growing up then and, and after his, his education, um, Non left the area and went to Brittany, which was just across the water, and lived there for, for the rest of her life and, and um, was venerated there. And there's um, uh, and set up what we would now call a convent, probably, um, uh, in what is now called Dirinon, and there's a lovely church to turn on there with a beautiful effigy um, of her. Um, meanwhile, back in West Wales, um, her son Dewi was becoming very well known as, as a preacher um, and as a holy man, and all sorts of exceptional things were happening where he, where he went, where he preached, um, and uh, a lot of those were written down much later, because at, at Dewey's time, communication tended to be oral, um, by speaking, by, by preaching, uh, by, by praying and, and meeting together. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're Wales and, and, and by singing. And a lot of these were not written down until medieval times, until the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, that, that sort of period. And, and what's known as the life of, of Dewey was, was written at that time, um, in Latin. Um, Vitas Santavidas, um, probably written in Lambadan, 
which was a centre of learning um, uh, at the time, and written by um, Rigavarch, it was called, who was the son of a bishop of, of St. David's, Sullian. Um, now, it, it wasn't exceptional at the time for lives of so-called saints to be to be written. It was a, a medieval thing, if you like, um, called hagiographies of saints often. But a lot of what we we think we know about Dewey was from that particular life, and and um, it was obviously told several times because there are several different versions and several different um, uh, translations of the different versions. Um, but there was a lot that Rigavach told us that was about the way in which they lived here in, in St. David's, um, uh, called Menevia then, or Mannoy. Um, and uh, really, it was here that all this was happening, not because it was remote, as some people think now. But it was, this area was a sort of motorway service station of the 6th century, because people then travelled by water, they travelled by sea. So here we were just across the road from Ireland, very busy place, Ireland, um, just uh, across the water from Cornwall, round the corner from Brittany, round the corner from the Mediterranean. Um, uh, and th there are some very robust um, evidence of uh, trading links between West Wales and the Eastern Mediterranean. A lot of work in the books surrounding me, where I'm sitting now, um, on saints and seaways from, from, from that period. Um, so, so 6th century West Wales was a busy place. Um, a lot of travelling, a lot of visitors. Um, you might think that that sounds familiar, but the, the travelling and the visitors would be coming by water and by the sea from the west and the south, rather than by land from the east. Um, we sometimes get asked, how did Dewey get made a saint? Um, uh, and it kind of wasn't as straightforward as that. Celtic saints um, uh, were often recognised as, as saints or called saints because they were holy people, and the the people who knew them and the people around them would refer to them as saints, and certainly after they died, they would be um, called saints. And, and of course, in Wales, we have all sorts of, of churches and villages dedicated to saints, um, uh, and, and, and saints that, that the, the current church and the later Roman Catholic Church had never heard of or, or, or didn't know. Um, uh, but they were Celtic saints because they, they were recognised as such as holy people. And Dewey was, was one of those. He was certainly um, uh, recognised as a saint either in his day or immediately afterwards from, from what we can tell. In the Rigavach life, at the beginning, he's referred to um, as Dewi. He's referred to later sometimes as a bishop or, or an archbishop, which is meant to be giving him a, a, a title of respect. And then towards the end, he's referred to as a saint. Um, uh, but in the, the, the later Roman Catholic Church, there was there's a much more formal process of making saints. Um, and Dewi is one of the few saints who who went through both those recognitions, as, as it were, because the Normans certainly, when they um, invaded and, uh, and much later conquered this part of the world, and Normans were visiting for hundreds of years before they managed to conquer us, um, they, they knew of David and, and of Dewey, and they recognised him. So William I, known as William the Conqueror often, came here on pilgrimage. Well, the wording that's used is the equivalent of came here to pray. 
um, uh, because he knew of and because they recognised Debbie's hand, um, uh, which is interesting. Um, and then in in about eleven twenty three, the the Pope, so Roman Catholic Church, um, Pope Calixtus, um, either recognised Dewey as a saint in Catholic terms as well, or or made him a saint in Catholic terms as well. And there there were two big um, uh, tributes that Calixtus paid at the time. One was to Dewey, and one was to um, uh, uh, St. James, who had travelled from the Holy Land, St. James the Apostle uh, of Christ, who travelled from the Holy Land, uh, supposedly round the northern side of the Mediterranean and to Spain, um, to Compostela and to Santiago. They call him Iago, as we do in Wales, <laughs> Santiago of Compostela. Um, uh, and uh, at the same time, Calixtus recognised, Pope Calixtus recognised that two pilgrimages to St. David's was worth whatever worth might have meant then, um, one to Rome, and the three um, uh, travels on pilgrimage to, to St. David's was, was the value of one to Jerusalem. Um, this was also at the time, in purely practical terms, that that pilgrimages or visits to the Holy Land and to Jerusalem um, were not always possible because it, it was occupied. This was the period of the Crusades. And we don't always realise that the Crusades also meant that the people couldn't always access the places that they were used to going to visit and to venerate as the places where the Bible tells us um, Christ um, lived. Uh, and so there was an attempt to build up other places, um, certainly across Europe, um, as as places of pilgrimage and, and, and holy places to visit. And St. David's, um, by all evidence, does seem to be one of those. And Many people over the centuries have been here. Says, yeah, there's there is something fairly special um, uh, when you're here um, and and about this place. So, uh, Dewey has always been recognised as a saint um, in all sorts of ways. Um, and the other question, of course, that, that we often get asked about him is, how did he become patron saint of Wales? And again, that seems to have emerged over the um, the, the centuries. But when you look at uh, Dewey compared to, say, the other um, three so-called patron saints of the other countries of, of what's currently um, United Kingdom, um, he is the only one who both existed and lived and worked in the country that, that has adopted him as a patron saint. And, 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 and that, that is quite a strength in itself as well. So although one can sort of look into various ways in which Dewey um, is valid as our patron saint and as a saint. Um, it, it's how he was, not whether he was. Um, and I would recommend to anybody, I mean, you don't have to read the medieval books. There is a, a fabulous book by um, Gerald Morgan um, on uh, in pursuit of, of St. David. Um, um, I've got it here in, in, in both languages. Um, and um, uh, that really brings together some of uh, what Dewey, who Dewey was and what we know about him and, and when and how and why. Some of the writings about him refer to him as being in the, the Egyptian um, tradition, which meant that he was a very uh, um, aesthetic um, monk or, or holy man um, and um, that he, he meant to make life awkward. Um, you weren't meant to have an enjoyable life if you were dedicating your, your, your life to God. Um, uh, uh, so this was boggy. 
um, this area um, that he established whatever it was monastery a cell a community um, uh, it it was boggy it was it was near the sea it flooded the water was cold there are references to to the the monks and the people with him um, having real difficulty in ploughing the land to 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 grow any food there um, and often because he didn't want to to be harmful to animals they used to to they used to be in the plough themselves rather than use animals for it. Um, that um, he used to pray standing up to his neck in cold water. Well, you don't do that for fun. Um, uh, but also because this was a, room, a, a an area at the time that was not necessarily inhabited at all. Um, although throughout Pembrokeshire and throughout West Wales there, there are um, lots of strong evidence. Um, of earlier habitations, um, uh, there's not a lot in this particular peninsula earlier necessarily than the than the sixth century. Um, but he didn't come here because there was already a town here, um, uh, uh, or, or a place of learning, or, or, or something like that. Um, all of that followed because Dewi had been here, um, and. Uh, uh, and so the various names that we see being used for St. David's in, in, in the earlier times, Menevia in Latin, Munnoy in, in medieval Welsh. Uh, the Rigavarch books were written in, in Latin, the stories there, mostly in Latin. Another big source that we have uh, from early period, not quite back to the 6th century, is Britotawasogion, Chronicles of the Princes, some of it written here probably, some of it in Llambadan, um, and that was written in medieval Welsh. So there were there were different names, but it it was it was Dewi's house, the tea Dewi, that that then brought people here, and that it it grew up around uh, where Dewi had been. Where exactly his chapel or cell, whatever it was, was we don't know. We don't have stones from that period. We don't know if if it was built in stone or if it was built in wood or mud or whatever. But it was believed to be in this area, in the the uh, Valin Rossin, um, uh, Cum Rossin, so often called, um, uh, on the on the peninsula on Dewis land. The Normans came here. William the first um, is recorded as coming here to pray. We don't know exactly what what church that what would have been here when he came, um, and there are references then to him him going back along. He didn't necessarily conquer. There was a huge understanding of what we would call soft power. Um, so on the way back, it is recorded that he wanted to build something somewhere to show he'd been, um, and there was already um, a, a, a Roman. Um, um, uh, town in um, an, an evidence in a place called Cardiff, um, and so he built um, a, a castle there and, and a tower, which is you know what's now the Norman keep in the middle of Cardiff Castle. Um, uh, but we don't think that William the First built anything here. Um, and then the next monarch to visit here, a Norman monarch, from what we know, was Henry the Second, who came here 
within a few months of the murder of Thomas Beckett, um, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, who um, uh, Richard Tawashogion very clearly said that he was murdered at the instigation of Henry II. He came here and he was very much into, into soft power. And, and it was after Henry II's visit here and his alliances-ish um, with um, the article of Ries. Um, and of course, Henry II was the one who refused to make Gerald Cymro Bishop of St. David's, despite the fact that he, he was elected by the chapter here at the time. So there was a chapter, there was a cathedral community here. There was something that Henry II visited on pilgrimage on Michaelmas in um, 1171, um, as recorded very clearly in Brita Thomas Ogion. Um, and uh, it was after that that the first of the large Norman cathedrals was built, but with the pilgrimages that started then as the medieval industry of pilgrimage, um, uh, that wasn't big enough. And so a larger one was built. And a lot of what we've actually got here now and what we what we live and work and worship in at the moment um, uh, dates from 1181 and, and from that period. So the second large Norman cathedral, really. Pilgrimages we think of as, as specifically um, religious events, um, people travelling for for religious reasons to sacred sites, but also, I mean, anyone who, who, who's read or, or seen TVs or movies of Chaucer's tales knows that it, it was just kind of the holiday of the time. That was how you travelled. It was just called a pilgrimage, and the places that you went weren't the seaside. They were they were St. Shrines. Um, so there was a lot of travelling um, to here um, during um, uh, the, the medieval centuries, and, and, and we're, we're looking at you know, 13th, 14th centuries um, here. Um, the Bishop's Palace, the fabulous huge Bishop's Palace that's, that's next to the cathedral, um, was was a place where um, the VIPs who came on pilgrimage, as it were, in, including um, uh, sovereigns, um, would would stay. Um, it it was absolutely fabulous in its day. Um, uh, it is worth looking at. It's it's part of the cathedral estate. It's now managed by Cadu. Um, it's an ancient monument, um, and. Uh, it is. It is. There are all sorts of parts of it that are really unique, and um, it would have been very gaudy and very grand in um, the 14th and the 15th centuries. And there's still evidence of that. I mean, huge window spaces that would have had a lot of glass in, which was very posh, and and was really showing the wealth of the bishops. Um, but as well as the, the VIPs who would have been staying there, and there are two huge, well, at least one huge banqueting hall area, and, and a very fancy kitchen that in all sorts of ways, very modern, um, um, with some of what, and that's certainly, you know, go to the Bishop's Palace just to see the kitchen, apart from anything else. Um, uh, uh, there, 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 there are also spaces there that were for um, ordinary pilgrims, um, there's there's one range at one side of it that was probably a, a sort of hospital for people who weren't so well. And of course, throughout the area, there are places that in various ways are called hospitals, a spati, 
um, the the Welsh um, uh, word for hospital, um, hospital. Um, you know, they they get they get various different versions of the word come out, and these would have been people who were travelling, yeah, and who who weren't always ill when they were staying there, but that was a place that they were staying on on the travels. It was the B and B of of the time um, that they would have been um, spending time. So so there was a huge pilgrimage industry here. Um, uh, and, and that was the, the, the money that fueled paying for the Bishop's Palace and, and keeping it going. Um, uh, and also, as, as you can see when you go round the cathedral, what are now, what's now the wall at the back of the, of the high altar and the, and the fabulous, um, uh, Italian mosaics, Venetian mosaics, uh, that are there now, that was the back wall of the 12th century cathedral, um, with probably three fabulous lintel windows there. Um, and then the area that's now Holy Trinity Chapel, um, and that many people remember that the, the reliquary with Bones of St. David was, was there, um, uh, that was outside of the cathedral, and the pilgrims would have been walking past that, and with the monks and the services and things happening inside, and that, that split was very common in, in the design of, of pilgrimage cathedrals and pilgrimage churches. Um, and then during that, that period that we now know as the Reformation, that was when um, some huge changes were happening. So Tudor times, really. And this was, it, it wasn't just because Henry VIII wanted to get divorced um, and had a big split with Rome. There were huge movements of change in the church and in society and in politics across Europe, of which Wales was a part. And some of the books that we're surrounded by were produced in various places around Europe and were about the thinking of involving everybody in in the life of the church and in the worship of the church and in the learning of the church. Because although places of learning were, were church-based and monastic-based at the time, they were, during the Reformation period, moving to become much more secular and therefore more people being involved in them. Um, and of course, one of the changes during that period was that Bibles were being produced and worship was being produced in languages other than Latin, so that people who didn't speak Latin, i.e. virtually most of the world, um, uh, could be involved in it. And in Germany, that meant in German. In England, that meant in English. In Wales, that meant in Welsh. The majority of the population were Welsh-speaking. And um, there had been various parts of, of the Bible, especially New Testament, um, translated in, into Welsh um, by various people in Wales in different bits. I, I often think sort of people translated their favourite bits. Um, but um, what Elizabeth I did, really, was to bring all that together and to say there will be a standardised version of the Bible in Welsh. And, you know, this is Wales. And so a committee was put together, a commission, the first one which was chaired by um, William Morgan, um, Bishop Morgan, and um, um, a Bible of Old Testament, Apocrypha, and New Testament was produced in Welsh, the first complete one in 1588. And that was a huge exercise because the, the scholars who did that went back to the earliest that they could find. So imagine these people in throughout, throughout Wales, some in West Wales, some in Abergwilly, some in St. David, some Baden, um, the rest of Wales and St. Asaph, um, uh, Lloyd and Landef even, um, were, were working away at original Greek texts and original Hebrew texts. Um, 
and discussing between themselves what was the best way of saying these original ancient texts in Welsh to communicate to all the people around them. So it, it was an incredible exercise. And then printing it. Um, we think that you know new technology is, is something that only happens to us. But I think we all underestimate how revolutionary printing was. We're sitting in a medieval scriptorium on seats that were created in 1340, um, where um, monks and their, their apprentices and, and others in the cathedral would have sat and written out parts of the Bible, of prayer books, of the service for the evening, of the offices for Compline and and different things, and would have written them out by hand, and it would have taken ages. And to move from that to what was a sort of industrialised process almost of printing over 900 copies of the complete Bible in Welsh and distributing it to every church uh, in, in Wales was an incredible exercise to do, absolutely incredible, and we really do underestimate it. But 1588, um, Tudor scholars will know, um, was also the year of the Spanish Armada. So events in Europe... Um, <laughs> made changes to, to what we were doing. Um, investment probably um, was diverted to the distribution exercise, um, not necessarily to the translation or the production or the printing exercise. And, and so the Bible that we, we tend to know as the, the, the first widely distributed Bible in Welsh was 1620. Um, uh, and uh, technology had moved on a bit, so that was physically more robust. Um, the translation was was essentially the same. There was some of the changes are probably what we would call typos. Um, if you'd created the the wood block or the metal block print block, it was even more of a hassle to change one or two letters than than it is now for us. Um, so so that was happening throughout Wales at, at that time, um, and uh, there were again over nine hundred of these. 1620 Welsh Bibles. We've got some in, in the Cathedral Library and there are others around Wales. Um, uh, but they were books that were used. They, they're big and they were designed to be up on the pulpit um, or on the lectern and read from, um, partly because a lot of the congregation um, weren't into reading at the time. They were into talking, they were into singing, um, uh, but they weren't necessarily able to read it. And, and in many ways, literacy in Wales grew up around those first Welsh Bibles because people wanted to read it for themselves. Um, and um, because they were books that were to be read from, public books, um, um, they, they were called, um, most of them um, fell apart over the years. So we've got one here, for instance, that we've had restored. So it's got completely new covers. But you can see that the corners of the pages, um, you know, people have been turning them for 401 years now. Um, uh, so, so those have disintegrated, and as I say, we've got this one copy which which we have on display most of the time when people can come to the cathedral library and see it. Um, uh, and and it is really a, a national treasure. It is part of our, our heritage in Wales. This this Escopari sixteen twenty Welsh Bible. We also have have a copy that that is often on public display that I call our loose leaf version. Um, uh, because it's unrestored and it fell apart. You know, when you keep opening and closing a book, the spine goes. 
um, uh, and, and the stitching goes on the spine. Um, but we have with that one um, its, its original covers, which we display alongside it. And, and it is quite special, and people will often come here on, on St. David's Day, on, on Godewe, to, to be in um, St. David's and to be in the cathedral with the special events and the special services that we have here. Um, and that includes coming to see some of the first, the first Bibles in Welsh. And that was a, that was a key part of, of the Tudor Reformation. Um, um, in Wales. But also, of course, there was a huge changes with the closure of the monasteries and the closure of the abbeys and, and in St. David's, um, the closure of the Bishop's Palace because um, uh, the, the first, um, as it were, Protestant bishop that was moved in here in, in the Reformation, one of the first things he did um, was to was to close the Bishop's Palace, uh, get rid of all this over-the-top entertaining and gaudiness that, that was happening. Um, and uh, and that hasn't been um, used since. Um, the roof was taken off, and if you take the roof uh, off a, of a, a building in, in Pembrokeshire, it didn't last very long. Um, uh, but it is a fabulous ruin, and I really do recommend. People will often come to the cathedral and not go to the Bishop's Palace because they're not quite sure what it is. But it's part of the story and the history of, of the place. Um, and and then there were parts of the cathedral that, that were probably um, uh, destroyed, as, as other places across West Wales certainly were. Um, at the time, and, and places closed down. Um, but one of the places that was closed down was 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 Greyfriars in 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 Carmarthen, and um, buried there was Edmund Tudor, who was the grandfather of Henry VIII, under whose auspices all this destruction was happening. So, what do you do with the king's grandfather when you've been told to destroy the building that he's buried in? And the answer was, you rebury him in St David's Cathedral. Um, so Edmund Tudor is was reburied here. You can see his his tomb um, in front of the high altar, alongside um, uh, Debbie Sant's shrine. And some of that may be the original tomb that was moved here. The brass on it with the red dragon is um, uh, is is a, a much later, a sort of eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties period um, uh, reproduction of the original. Um, and then around the tomb, in definite Tudor spin, in English, is is a record saying that the um, here interred are the bones of Edmund Tudor, um, father and brother to kings. And then between each of the English words in brass around this tomb um, is a Tudor rose, and and the rose becoming by then the Tudor logo. Um, and uh, everybody who's into branding would perfectly understand why that was being written as it was when the, when uh, a new tomb was established here or the existing tomb was was brought here. Um, so so the Tudor period in the church um, uh, was was a huge period of of turbulence, but also of change. And one of the things that's really important to us in Wales is is the role that music had had then. Um, uh, Elizabeth I was was a, a, a great um, sponsor of the arts, um, uh, um, and it wasn't just Shakespeare; it was it was also music and church music, uh, and church musicians also uh, developing music, composing music elsewhere. And and again, uh, St David's in West Wales has has a, a big role in that. One of the um, uh, key Tudor composers at the time was a chap called Thomas Tompkins, whose, whose family were, were originally Cornish um, and who came to St. David's. 
Tompkins's father was um, was the organist um, here, um, and uh, the family were, were all musical. And then Thomas Tompkins himself, who was a chorister here and who was born and brought up in St David's, was, was definitely a chorister here. May have moved here in, from here in his late teens or, or in his early twenties, but he became one of the the Elizabethan church music composers. And one of the things we love to do in the library is we have some some of. Um, his first publications, which were actually not published until after his death because it was a little bit hairy. He lived into the Stuart times and, and in fact, he died after the um, uh, the, the execution of, of one of his patrons, um, Charles I, and he, he wrote a piece for organ because it was too dangerous for singers to, to sing it as well because they were all banned. Um, he wrote a piece for organ at the execution of Charles I called a pavan for distracted times and I know that people have been finding that those distracted times are coming back again now so we display some of his original music within sight of where he lived and and Tudor music is something that we we accept as part of of um, not just even song but so much of church music now and and uh, although of obviously many composers including contemporary um, uh, composers we, we also sing and, and play here and in, in other churches that they are very much in that style um, and uh, and um, in, in Wales um, I, I think we um, while we appreciate our music we don't um, always uh, we're not always aware of, of how much the the church that was in Wales at the time also played in the development um, of, of that church music And then, of course, we, we're sort of coming up to, to the present day. And during all of this time, when people were, were visiting to visit Dewi's shrine um, uh, or to visit on, on pilgrimages, there was um, the, the houses around the close were building up. And um, Gower, Bishop Gower, who built the, uh, the bishop's palace, also built the, the walls around the cathedral close, um, a lot of which um, can still be seen. Um, today and at the moment um, and then outside of the close walls there was also a community growing up um, uh, and and that's what what we know now as as the the city of of St David's uh, of Tidewi um, which grew up because Dewi had been here all those hundreds of, of years before um, and and then um, sort of bringing it, it up more to, to the present day a uh, mere hundred years ago uh, the church in Wales was established uh, separately from the Church of England. Uh, so one of the themes that goes through the 1500 years is kind of how irrelevant what was happening to the church throughout England was to what was happening here. I mean, we haven't talked about um, Augustine and Canterbury because it's not relevant to, to the story of, of what Dewey was doing and, and what all the people here were doing afterwards. And one of the things that happened in Norman times was, was that... Um, they tried to here. They tried to through Charles Cumrah and and Rees, tried to make that quite clear to um, uh, those who were trying to take over the state at, at the time that that the church actually was doing something completely different. Um, and 
that was was anything kind of um, re-emphasized and then reimposed, and so so the establishment of the Church in Wales to many people, um, which occurred really in 1920, finally, um, was was actually just reinstating or going back to what Gerald Camrara and others and, and Dewey had had been doing prior to um, the the organisation of the Church that had come through Norman times and then definitely through Tudor times and and. Uh, with the, the the Church of England that was established as part of the Reformation, and um, and even today we're doing things here that um, are resonant of of what has been happening here over hundreds of years, over centuries, um, and people come here and and medieval scholars will come and say, but you've got you've still got a medieval shrine, um, and of course they were destroyed elsewhere. But once Edmund Tudor was was moved here. Um, it seems that a lot of the destruction ceased so that Dewey's medieval shrine that people come here and visit, including on Olga Dewey, but not always on Golgothewi, and every Friday we have um, prayers at the shrine, and they are live-streamed around the world. And, uh, and, and that, that's something that kind of, it's again technology carrying on so much of, of what has, has been done here just over the centuries. So obviously, um, uh, the 1st of March is an important day to us in St. David's Cathedral. We um, uh, we mark it in, in various ways. There are special services. Um, there is always a service um, uh, in the morning. Uh, we normally have our, our, our 8 o'clock um, prayer service. Um, and there will be a, a, a communion service um, in the middle of the morning. Um, uh, uh, the bishop will... Um, uh, give communion at, at the high altar. Um, reliquaries um, are usually brought out for that with uh, bones in. Um, and uh, nowadays it also um, is the culmination of a, of a, a walk from St. Non's Chapel um, uh, up round the village, um, the Oriola Park, uh, to, the, to the cross in the middle of St. David's, where, where the Bishop of St. David's will, will bless the city of St. David and, and will, will send a message around Wales from there. Um, and, uh, and then the cathedral is open all day and, and it always, um, it's always very moving the number of people who will come to be here on St. David's Day. Um, if it coincides with, with holiday periods and weekends, um, especially families will come and, and, um, uh, and the library is always open all day and we will have some of the Welsh Bibles and other uh, books of, of um, St. David's life available for, for people to see. And and I love it when families will come to bring the children to see the Welsh Bibles and to have their pictures taken with the Welsh Bibles and to touch some of the original Welsh Bibles and, and some of the stories of, of Dewi and to come and be here where Dewi was. And then the, the, the choral even song on the evening of March the 1st is always a very special one. Um, with some of the music um, uh, to the extent that we know going back to, to his day we do talk to our, uh, amongst ourselves about often we look into what music David would have heard what music he would have sung there are um, antiphons and, and plain song that were probably from from the day and, and from what the monks would have sung um, and those will normally be sung here on that day as well. So it is a special place to be 
on that day and and in all sorts of ways although we mark Dewi every day here we do it even more so and with dozens and hundreds of other people joining us as well on March the 1st which is always very special and the daffodils are always out in time the place is surrounded by daffodils on March the 1st Dewi seems to laugh for us as well Cynhyrchir podlediad adleisiad gorffennol gan planed a'i ariannu gan arwain Sir Benfro. The Echoes of the Past podcast is produced by Planed and funded by Arwain Sir Benfro.